passage today is actually part of a bigger conversation, and so I invite you to open your Bibles with me or pull them up on your phones, whatever your preferred method is, as we jump around a little bit. The movie Miracle shows the story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team and its so-called Miracle on Ice victory over the USSR, which was one step on the way to a gold medal at Lake Placid. As tryouts are being held, on the first day of them, Coach Herb Brooks whittles the group down to 26, to be further reduced to 20 by the start of the games. And his assistant looks at the list and gets concerned, and he says to him, you're missing some of the best players. And Brooks replies, I'm not looking for the best players, I'm looking for the right ones. And it would appear that was the case because when the final roster was formed, there was only one Olympic veteran on the team. And yet, the team would still go on to win the gold medal. Good decisions don't always look like good ideas when they first happen. Our passage today shows God selecting someone for a task that is in the middle of God's defining act for Israel's history in the Old Testament. God is selecting a likely aging shepherd who ran away from his home because he was wanted for murder. He's selecting him to deliver his own people who are under the oppression of the local superpower. At first glance, he does not appear to be the best candidate for liberating God's people. This is the core event of Israel's history, which they continually point to well after the fact as a reminder of who their God is and who they are. And God's call to Moses in chapter 3 shows that God's decisions don't always come to the people that we think they should. They don't always come in the time that we think they should or in the manner that we think they should. We're going through a few key passages in Exodus this month, and as we do... We're going to look at how this defining event for Israel speaks to our identity and our relationship with the living God. Now, Exodus is a rich book with a lot of significant material, and we could easily take up the greater part of a year with it if we'd like. But we're only going to look at a few highlights that will show us what it means to be freed by God and in relationship with Him while partnering with Him in his purposes. Now, Exodus can be a difficult book at times, particularly because we come, to fa- we come face to face with God's hand of judgment over the land of Egypt, and it's not always easy to come to terms with, particularly when we get to the plagues that he sends on Egypt, particularly the death of the firstborn during Passover. And I don't pretend to have easy answers for that. And I would caution you against easy answers for difficult issues. But while these are difficult realities, it may help to frame them in terms of God's purposes. Ultimately, Exodus is a book telling of God acting to make good on promises that he made to Israel's ancestors. So that the promise to make them a blessing to the nations that will ultimately come to fruition. It's a promise that finds its ultimate expression in the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who 
came to redeem the world to God's self. And that's what this work works toward. It's one chapter in God's salvation history for the, for the, the good of the entire world. As someone once framed it, we cannot judge God's motives as if we were God. But we can recognize God's purposes. Exodus is a dynamic book with a lot of rich themes that people continually turn to. And one of the major ones is liberation, as the central event shows us. It's certainly appropriate. And that is in recognizing God freeing Israel from Egypt's oppression. People have often recognized the reality of the spiritual freedom that comes with God's lordship. In addition to that, people throughout history have found hope for freedom from oppression in our world. Human oppression, particularly those under oppression, have found hope from God. Recognizing his heart for freedom in the book, people under circumstances such as slavery or systemic injustice, systemic racism, economic oppression. And while both of these themes are appropriate, it's important that if we recognize God's heart for freedom in the book, then we have to take an honest assessment of our social location when we apply it to the oppression in our world. For example, if one is under oppression, they might look to God for hope for relief from their situation. However, if one is in a more privileged situation, it's worth recognizing God's heart for freedom for those who are oppressed and asking what that means for someone in a more empowered position. One commentator pointed out that socially, many Christians may find themselves in a position closer to Egypt than to Israel, for example. And being aware of those dynamics will help us see what the story means for the reality of our world. Because our spiritual freedom under Christ, a big part of how it expresses itself is in working toward freedom in our world. As Jesus described his kingdom reality. Now there's quite a bit we need to fly over before jumping into the call of Moses. And so if you recall, back when we looked at Genesis in the fall... We talked about God's promise to Abraham in chapter 12 to make him into a nation that would bless all the people of the world. And when Abraham gets to Canaan, God promises to give his descendants that land. And Genesis ends with subsequent generations settling in Egypt after Joseph saves the country from famine. And Exodus opens telling us that the Israelites were fruitful in Egypt. They became numerous filling the land, and a new king comes to power who doesn't know Joseph, and he feels threatened by the numbers of the Israelites, and so consigns them to harsh, forced labor that makes their lives bitter, and, they con and yet they continue to increase. And it gets to the point where the king commands the Hebrew midwives to kill every Hebrew baby boy, but we're told that a couple of midwives, Shifra and Pua, because they feared God, they, speer, they spared these boys and gave the excuse that Hebrew women give birth 
quickly, not like Egyptian women. They, they give birth to these babies before we get there, is what they said. And God rewards them with their own families. And Pharaoh the king then orders all Hebrew boys to be thrown into the Nile. And one woman, to protect her son, she hides him until she is unable to do so. And when she gets to that point, she makes a basket, or rather she makes a makeshift boat out of a basket, sealing it and floats him up the Nile. And the baby is found by Pharaoh's daughter, who spares him, even though he was a Hebrew. And as it turns out, the baby's sister offers to bring a Hebrew woman to nurse the child. And at the approval of Pharaoh's daughter, she brings the baby's mother, who gets paid to nurse the baby. The baby is named Moses. And he gets raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now one day Moses sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew, and when he thinks no one is looking, he kills the Egyptian. He then finds out that people know, and he flees to a place called Midian when Pharaoh tries to kill him. And there we are told that seven daughters of a priest are trying to water their flocks, and they're driven away by local shepherds from the well. And Moses comes to their aid, and he rescues them, watering their flocks. And their father gives Moses his daughter Zipporah for a wife, and he has a son named Gershom, whose name calls to mind Moses' feeling as a foreigner in a foreign land, which is where he is. And chapter 2 ends telling us that the king dies, and God heard Israel's groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's right before we find Moses with his father-in-law's flock. Now in our passage we see that God's call finds Moses right where he is, with the flock. That's where he sees the burning bush. We're told the angel of the Lord appears. And when the Old Testament refers to the angel of the Lord, it's a physical manifestation of God's presence. We're told later that no one can see God and live, such as his holiness. That if we were to see him as he is, we would die, which is why Moses is told to take off his shoes and not to come any closer. And that's why he hides his face. But time and place don't always look like we think it should. Moses is being chosen to liberate God's people from Egypt, and he's chosen for this work while he's living as a foreigner in a foreign land. He's not, the call does not come to him while he's living as a prince in Egypt, in a position where he may have at least had some more influence perhaps may have been able to act as a diplomat on behalf of Israel. Instead, the call, the, the call comes when he's living as a shepherd, doing work despised by the Egyptians in a foreign land, in a place where he does not have a lot of pull with Egypt, or Israel for that matter. It's easy for us to write ourselves off or to ignore God's voice when things don't look like they align with what God is impressing upon us. I don't know how many people I've met who are in ministry who get called to ministry when they're doing something completely different. 
or get called to do anything when the circumstances don't seem quite right. One of my classmates in seminary, a woman named Princess, she just received an award for distinguished service for uh, North Park Seminary alumni. And I've been reading her story, and it's fascinating. She's, now, she's done a lot of things, a lot of wonderful work, but one of the things that I read about her doing was creating a school in her town in Zambia a while back for orphans who had been orphaned by HIV, who had lost their parents to HIV. And when she feels this call impressed upon her, the way she talks about it, it's not in a place where people are already contributing to the idea. Neither does she pitch it and see what happens. Rather, she goes for it with, I think, $10. And later God provides, but when she felt the call and, and obeyed it, it was in a place where she didn't have a lot of reasons to believe that it would happen, and yet she followed the Lord's leading. But when we obey, it doesn't have to be anything big like that, or maybe even a career change. It can be even the idea to contribute to something with our time or money, or to lead perhaps a ministry that keeps coming to our heart or our head. And if that's the case, whatever God is impressing upon us that he wants us to be a part of, it's worth asking ourselves the question, or at least thinking twice before we tell ourselves that we need to wait to get our ducks in a row before we obey. That doesn't mean that we don't plan. There's nothing wrong with planning. But it might be worth considering that perhaps those ducks may not line up the way we want them to. It's worth considering if God may be calling us to something now. And that might be for a reason. From a human standpoint, God's call doesn't always make sense, which is appropriate because for Moses, at least, God's call is bigger than Moses. God first identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he then identifies his reason or the reason he is addressing Moses. He says in verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Skipping to verse 10. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God is calling Moses, in the most immediate sense, out of compassion for his people who are under the oppression of Egypt, but more so to bring them into a land that he promised, going back to Abraham, to make Abraham's descendants a blessing to the whole world. And the sign of success, he mentions in verse 12, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And he elaborates in the second half of verse 18 where he, God says to Moses and the, um, God says that Moses and the elders are to tell Pharaoh, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. They are being freed to freely worship God. 
in covenant relationship. And it plays out in them being brought into the land God promised to fulfill their purpose as a blessing to the world through which the whole world may know and worship God. It all goes back to God. Does it affect Moses? Absolutely. It affects Israel too. Throughout this story, they get a greater revelation of who God is. They learn more about what living in relationship with God is like. They know him more intimately. But it's bigger than Moses. It's bigger than even Israel. This is an important chapter in God's salvation history to make himself known to the world. One of the most influential ministry books in the la- for sure in the last few decades um, is The Purpose Driven Life, which addresses the question of why am I here? And the, the first line of the first chapter simply says, it's not about you. And then the paragraph closes saying, if you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. Whatever God is calling you to, whether it seems big or small, it's not about you. It all goes back to God. Which makes it all the more appropriate that God's call is empowered by his presence. It's not just bigger than Moses in purpose. It's bigger than his ability. Even as Moses questions God, he says, who am I? And God's first promise to Moses is, I will be with you. And he flat out objects to God as the conversation continues in chapter 4. I invite you to follow along with me. It says, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the the snake and it turned back into a staff into his hands. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And then he gives Moses two more signs. Has him put his hand in his cloak and take it out and it becomes leprous. And then he has him do it again and it's healed. He gives them a third sign to take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and it becomes blood. And then going down to verse 10, it says, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have, nor, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You, will, you shall speak to him and put w- words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak 
and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hands so you can perform the signs with it. Now, I think Moses is raising some valid concerns. Who am I that I should go? What if they don't believe me? Those are reasonable questions. Because Moses can't take on the local superpower by himself. But God's answers are all beyond Moses. Who am I? I will be with you. Who should I say is sending me? Tell them I am has sent you. What if they don't believe me? Here are three miraculous signs to show them. I am not eloquent. I will help you speak. Please send someone else. I've already sent your brother to help you. Everything's beyond Moses. Further, the ultimate method of freedom lies in God's hands. He says in verse 20, So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I will perform. After that, he will let you go. Verse 21, And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people. That's why it doesn't matter how qualified Moses is or is not. What matters is that he obeys. Every answer God gives Moses points to God's being and his work. I will be with you. Who is sending me? Say, I am has sent me to you. And that title, I am, alludes to the name of God, which scholars refer to as Yahweh. But as we talked about in the Psalms, we don't know how it was pronounced because it was considered too holy to be pronounced. And so to this day, our Jewish neighbors say Adonai when reading the name of God in Hebrew, which simply means Lord, which is why we translate it that way. But I am is referring to God's active being in the world. That is what is accomplishing this. So why does God use Moses? Why does he use us for anything? Let's be clear. He doesn't need Moses to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need us. But I think it's I think he does it probably for the same reason that I like to cook with my son. My son is two, and he likes to cook. He is not a very good cook, but he asks to help. He wants to help. And so sometimes my wife or I will, will cook with him in one hand and, you know, doing whatever is in the pan in the other. It doesn't help the task of cooking. Sometimes we'll, we'll hand him the spatula, maybe let him move stuff around. Is that helping us accomplish cooking the meal? Does it make it more efficient? No. We do it because of the connection that comes of doing it together. God doesn't need Moses to do this work. But you better believe God, or you better believe Moses knows God a lot better at the end of this work. Israel does as well. Because God does the work, we know God more in the work. His title 
of I am. It's why people want to kill Jesus when he says in John 8, 58, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Understand, when Jesus says this, he's not getting cute with grammar. He's making a statement about his divinity. God is still in the business of bringing freedom. And the great I am continues to select and send servants to be part of his work. Not to our end. As good as it is for us to be doing God's work. But he does it so that people may know and worship him. Knowing his freedom in their lives. And so whatever he is highlighting in your life, whatever purpose or cause he is calling you to, the greatness of the work doesn't really matter because he is with us. And because he accomplishes the work as we do his work, we will know him more. Let's continue worshiping him.